All right, so I would encourage you again, before the evening's out, on the way out from Rod, pick up a prayer sheet. Join us in praying for one another in the church. We're going to continue, though, tonight with our Assurance of Salvation study. And just begin, though, I want you to imagine that you're going to a sporting event, say like a Dodger game, and you want to get inside the stadium, obviously. To get inside, you need a ticket, but you didn't buy one in advance. You just show up. And uh, not to worry, because if you've ever, ever been to a Dodger game, you know that as you drive in, even in the parking lot, there'd be tons of people just walking around selling tickets, scalping tickets. Now, I'm not sure what you think about that, but let's just say for the sake of illustration, you buy one of those tickets. Now, you have a ticket in hand. You're not in the stadium yet. You're still in the parking lot, but you've got a ticket. And because of the ticket, you can be assured that when you get to the entrance, well, you'll get inside. Because that's the only way you get in. The only way you can enter the stadium is with a ticket. And now that you, you're there, you made the trip, but you finally have the ticket, you can kind of rest assured, okay, we'll make it. We're going to get inside just a matter of time, but I've got the ticket. But as you stand in line, you're, the turnstiles are in line. You see up ahead, several people are being turned away. You start to wonder what's going on. And they had tickets, but it turns out they were counterfeit. They weren't real tickets. The only way in is with a ticket. It has to be a real ticket. It has to be an authorized ticket, not a phony ticket, obviously. And it seems like they bought their tickets from a scalper as well, and it was fake. Now, though, you start to worry. You still have your ticket, and technically nothing has changed for you, but you do start to worry. You start to wonder about your ticket. You have one in your hand, yes, but you no longer hold it with the same confidence you no longer are as assured that when you get to the, to the front of the line, you're, you're going to be admitted in. I mean, it, it should get you in, but you can't help but wonder, like, is my ticket real? Or do I have a fake? Will I be turned away? And as you approach the entrance, you become timid and fearful, and you've lost the assurance you had before. You just wonder, are you going to get in? Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but... In a way, it helps us understand the assurance of salvation. So let me explain. We'll come back to the illustration. You know, for a few weeks now, we've started to study the assurance of salvation. And assurance deals with the question, not how you get saved, but how you know you are saved. It deals with the question, not how to receive eternal life, but how, the, how you know you have received eternal life. And that's important to know. The Lord wants us to know that we've received a gift of salvation that enables us to live a life of, of confidence and boldness in faith, which he wants us to live and not fear. But where does assurance of salvation come from? So far, we've studied assurance's sure foundation, which is the word of God and the promises of God. That salvation itself is just a gift of God. It comes per his will. And he even goes so far as to preserve his people in their salvation. And so you should know, from God's perspective, like true salvation, it, it's 100% sure and 100% assured. Nothing can stop it. But, of course, we don't have goggles to see as God sees. And so we're still left wondering, like, okay, well, who are these elect? And who are these people who are secured by God? How do I know that's me? And so we started into the basis of assurance from our perspective. That's obviously what we want to know. And we found that the primary basis of assurance is simply faith or trust in the promises of God. God has 
made key promises in his word to save forever those who believe in Jesus. He promises to grant eternal life presently to those who repent and trust in his son. There's many such promises, so it's really simple math in a sense. Like, do you believe in Jesus? Have you repented and placed your complete trust in his son? Well, then, based on what God has said, you're saved. You have eternal life. Nothing can change that. God doesn't lie. So you can, therefore, be assured based on God's power and God's promises. And we know that salvation is based on faith alone. And in a fundamental sense, the knowledge that we possess that salvation is going to be tied to faith as well. Because nothing is more sure than God's word and God's promises. Your works, your deeds, your effort, anything that comes to your performance, it cannot be more assuring or more sure than God's word and God's promises. So assurance at its deepest level for those who believe is simply a matter of taking God at his word. And so long as you believe in Jesus, you can rest assured his promise to save forever applies to you. But that's not the end of the story. Why not? Well, there's this unsettling problem because we're made aware that some people, many people even, that they claim to have faith in Jesus. And they even believed they had full assurance. Like that when they died, they were for sure going to heaven. But they were wrong. They were as wrong as you could be. They were deceived. They, they didn't get to heaven. Despite their confession of faith and their great confidence that they would go to heaven, that they were turned away and they only received condemnation. Scripture talks about people like that. And that just kind of very unsettling leads us to wonder like, well, how, how can that be? And we wait a second. I, I thought salvation was as simple as just believing in Jesus, right? And God promises to save forever those who believe in Jesus, to give them eternal life, which cannot be lost, right? So what do we make of all those people who appear to believe in Jesus, but then they don't gain eternal life? What do we make of their false assurance? Has God's word failed? Have his promises been violated? No, his promise is still true. Those with true faith in Christ, they are saved forever. You can be assured based on that faith. But the kicker though is possessing true faith. You have to possess true faith. That There is, however, such a thing as false faith, phony faith, and unsaving faith. And the reality is there are many people who claim to believe in Jesus, but they fall short of what the Bible defines as true saving faith. God's promises have not failed. They never do. That person's so-called faith is what has failed. And this explains why their assurance was also false. And so using our analogy, if you were to picture the kingdom of heaven like Dodger Stadium, you're trying to get inside. The only way in is with that ticket. And the ticket represents your faith in Christ. It's the only way in. God doesn't accept works or deeds or merits. Like Dodger Stadium, there's just one way in. It's with a ticket. God only accepts faith in his son. Now, do you have faith in Jesus? And trust you here would, would answer yes. And so you can imagine that, well, you hold in your hand, so to speak, that, that ticket into heaven. Faith in Christ is the only way in. You have that. You have your ticket. 
you have the means of entrance. And God himself has promised he's going to admit everyone with the ticket. He won't turn anyone away who has the ticket of faith. In fact, he's going to sovereignly work to preserve them to make sure they get inside the stadium. So based on his promises, as long as you hold the ticket of faith in your hand, you can be assured God's promised. Just it's a matter of trusting him. You can have confidence that when you get to the door, you're going to be accepted. But in scripture, though, we see that you know, many people are turned away when they get to the door, the gates of heaven, so to speak. And it is then revealed that, well, their ticket was counterfeit, meaning their faith in Christ wasn't real. It was not a genuine saving faith. It was something else. But by then, it's too late. It's appointed for men to die once, then comes judgment. It's too late. They enter into condemnation. And that's a fearful thing. No one wants to be deceived. And so while in one sense we hold the ticket of faith in our hands, which is the only sure way into heaven, you know, we are believing in Jesus, it still leaves this area of doubt. Is our ticket real? Have we been scalped a fake? How do I know that when this ticket gets scanned, the light's going to turn green and I'll be allowed in? You know, I believe that the ticket of faith in Jesus is the only way into heaven, but how do I know that my faith, what I think is saving faith, how do I know that's the real thing? If there's such a thing as a false type of that. And so here we see the problem at hand, and here we see where our study of assurance needs to go. There's a shift that takes place now as we study the assurance of salvation. I think so far we've thoroughly established that that God binds himself to this promise to save and secure forever everyone who believes. If you believe in Jesus, you've been granted eternal life already, and you can rest assured by simply trusting in God's promises. But in another sense, we've kind of just kicked the can of assurance down the road because, because of the reality of false faith and false assurance, it just makes us wonder, okay, but, but then how do I know I have true faith? How do I know I have saving faith? Salvation is by faith alone. And assurance is ultimately based on faith. But obviously then your assurance is only going to be as good as your faith. And so how do I know I haven't been deceived? Or what I think is faith is actually something else. These are the questions we're going to address this evening. We're going to move our study of assurance forward tonight by studying what the Bible says about false faith and false assurance. It does talk about it quite a bit, actually. We will confirm scripture does indeed teach there is such a thing as false faith. And it does give rise to false assurance. And even if you want to argue that assurance is only based on faith or trust in God's promises, well, still, that assurance is only going to be as strong as that faith, the veracity of that faith. But how do you know that faith is real? Well, we're going to study examples of false faith and false assurance in Scripture. And they go so far as to tell us why that faith was lacking. So this is not a guessing game. We're not left in the dark. That Scripture pinpoints the defining marks of false faith and true faith. And so by studying these, we can examine ourselves as scripture calls us to, that we might know whether, you know, our ticket is real or counterfeit, whether our faith 
is verified according to what Scripture says. This is what a real ticket looks like. Or not by what a Scripture says a counterfeit ticket looks like. And so today we're going to look at the negative picture. The picture of false faith and false assurance. Hopefully you'll see though, we're building a contrast. And so next time and beyond, as we get into the positive side, the positive marks of faith, we will have some objective means to evaluate ourselves and our profession of faith, according to scripture, to see if, well, our ticket is is valid or not. So let's get into it. Just a couple simple sections, you might say, to the evening study. First is just false believers. Let's study some examples and what the Bible says about false believers. Simple as that, some Bible study. We want to start with some passages that no doubt are talking about false believers who had false assurance. These are people who, they believe they were saved. They totally believe they were destined for heaven. They claim to be Christians. They even assented that Jesus was Lord. Many passages even indicate these people had assurance of salvation. That they, they believed it. They were convinced that when they died, they fully expected to go to heaven. But they were deceived. They were wrong. They're identified as false believers. And the mere existence of false believers disturbs us. Now, how can people claim to believe in Jesus and be so convinced yet so wrong? I mean, if that's the case, can anyone really know if they're truly saved? But like I said, yes, they can. Scripture does not leave us in the dark. We're not left without an explanation as to why their faith was false. And such people, they should not have had assurance of salvation. And we can pinpoint why. Scripture identifies marks of false faith. And these will help us examine ourselves later. So that being said, let's get in some passages. We're going to start with, The biggest one, the clearest one when it comes to an example of false believers, and that's Matthew chapter 7. So you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. I'd like to follow along. Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23. Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll actually be looking at the verses Before this, a little bit later, there's a whole context here of good tree, bad tree, good fruit, bad fruit. But for now, let's just look at verses 21 through 23, an important passage. Christ says, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. This is not an unclear passage, but let's think about it. Clearly he's establishing that verbal assent to Jesus as Lord is not enough. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, these are are taken as uh, cries of faith. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will go to heaven. Some will, some won't. There are some people who say, Lord, Lord, and their confession is real, and they will go, but not everyone, some won't. You know, faith in Jesus as Lord is the only ticket into the kingdom. Why would people who said Jesus is Lord be turned away? Well, evidently, their faith in Jesus as Lord was not 
genuine, which is evidenced by the results of their so-called faith. And for these people, their faith claim was contradicted and proven false by their lives. Who enters the kingdom here? Jesus says, the one who does the will of my father. They prove to be true disciples. Salvation is by grace through faith. But doers of the word are the ones who prove that they have been transformed and saved by grace. That's the outward evidence of the inward change. But these false believers never displayed that outward evidence and their faith was just lip service. Now, what's interesting is these people, they did claim some evidence that was to back up their profession of faith. And you see what their, their evidence was. It was at verse uh, 22. They claimed to prophesy, to cast out demons, and to perform many miracles. And notice it says, all in the name of Jesus. So how can you say they didn't believe in the name of Jesus? Look at all they did in the name of Jesus. But you need to know, these three acts, none of them are ever listed as deeds of obedience to God. He said, the one who does the will of the Father will enter. These three deeds are never expressed as the will of God for his people. Yes, they can be spiritual gifts. They were used at times as spiritual gifts, but they're never shown as deeds of obedience for all of God's people ever. They're not described as spiritual fruit. They may be miraculous gifts, but they're never given as the measure of true faith, obedience, or spirituality. And on the flip side, what was distinctly lacking from their lives? Well, you know, real obedience to the real commands of God. Scripture never commands believers to prophesy, cast out demons, or perform miracles. God did use some with gifts to do those things, there's not a single command for you ever to do those things. But God does have other commands like, you know, love your neighbor, don't be greedy, right? The list goes on. There, there are real commands. And they display this distinct lack of obedience to the real commands. And so Jesus commends, condemns them in verse 23 as those who, what? Practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's a present participle. They they weren't just, you know, occasionally sinning. This was their way of life. They are ongoing, habitually in sin. They claimed the miraculous, but they failed when it came to real obedience to the revealed will of God. They're hypocrites. They had a double life. They weren't living the Christian life at all. And so Jesus reveals he never knew them, which means they, they were never saved. They were never born again. Notice it doesn't say, I once knew you, but you sinned so much, I stopped knowing you. No, he never knew them. Their confession was never saving, ever. And it was evidenced by their lives. And so in all here, we find such a clear example of, well, false believers, who for sure had a false assurance. They were expecting to be welcomed by Jesus, their Lord, when they died. They had a rude awakening. What was their assurance based on? Well, essentially, you'd boil it down to personal experience and claims of the miraculous, but these are never depicted as reasons for assurance in Scripture. Those aren't fruits of faith, per se. That's something we'll see as time goes on. Let's keep going, though, because we have a lot of passages to cover with a little Bible study and survey. You also have, so we're studying false believers. You also have many examples of, well, false teachers. 
And understand most examples of false teachers in the New Testament were people who, who said they believed in Jesus. They claimed to be part of the church and to be Christians, but something was wrong. They clearly weren't. That They are examples of a false believer. Christ himself warns, Matthew 24, 24, that in the future, many false Christs and false prophets will arise to lead astray the elect if possible. Then you have 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. I'll just read that. It says, for many such as Paul defending his apostleship against men who were claiming to be apostles, but they were false apostles. And so he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So there were people around the Corinthian church, they were claiming not just to be Christians, but to be apostles of Christ. That means representatives of Christ. Like they, they were representing Christ, not Paul. And such teachers also claim to represent righteousness as they defined it. But they were merely wearing a disguise. They weren't genuine. And in the end, how will these false apostles be revealed? He says, by their deeds, by which they will be judged. There is a distinct hypocrisy to their lives. And eventually, in this life or the next, it, it comes out. And they're proven false by their deeds. In fact, in addition to this, later in the chapter, verse 26, Paul also identifies a group he calls the false brethren. And he identified many groups in the church from false apostles, false teachers, even false brethren. They made the claims. They were in the visible church. But there's something wrong. They're false. Many examples. You also have Galatians 2.4. He says it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. He's identifying these Judaizers who they claimed Christ in the church. They were false brethren, not truly saved. In fact, that there's the longer version of that is like Titus 1. In fact, why don't you turn to Titus chapter 1, a little bit of longer passage so you can look at it. Titus 1, 10 through 16. I'll give you a second to turn there. Titus 1, 10 through 16. I'll start reading verse 10 of Titus 1. It says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. 
So again, here Paul is specifically referring to Jewish false teachers on the island of Crete. These Judaizers were Jews who had accepted Jesus and entered the church. They believed he was the Messiah. And so they're, they're in the church essentially. But over time, it became clear that they were still holding on to a different gospel, a gospel of works, adding the work of salvation as a requirement, or I'm sorry, the work of circumcision as a requirement for salvation. These people believed that they knew God. Of course they knew God. They're, they're the chosen people. And yeah, they've accepted the Messiah too. And so they, they had confidence in their salvation. But really, what was it based on? Well, on lineage, ancestry, the trappings of their religion. I mean, they were circumcised. They had the law. Their assurance was essentially based on religious tradition. That is not a true basis of assurance, though, as we will see. Now, here it seems there was a a segment of these people who were actually genuine believers, he says, that they weren't so far gone in their beliefs, they did not have a false gospel, but they didn't need to be reproved severely so that they would be sound in the faith, verse 13. There's a sliver who were not false. But others, though, he says, were outright false believers with a different gospel. They're described as defiled and unbelieving on the inside, which is made clear by their outsides. And what came out of their mouth? Well, he says, empty talk, deceit, greed. He says they turned away from the truth. And ultimately, they they professed to know God. They profess that they know God. But he says, by their deeds, they deny him. And of course, deny their own claims. Now, already we're kind of seeing a trend, aren't we? Then the examples of false believers in Scripture so far, you have people who, who claim to believe, claim to follow Christ, even had an assurance, maybe based on religious experience, based on tradition. But in the end, they're proven false. And what proves them false? What proves their faith false? Their deeds. Their deeds shows what was going on on the inside. We'll come back to that later, that thought. But a few more examples here before we move on. Let me read for you an an Old Testament example. Because this is nothing new. Micah 3.11. This is an Old Testament example of false believers with false assurance and this pronouncement upon Israel's leaders. He says, verse 11, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine... For money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. He's calling out the religious leaders of Israel who were extremely wicked, corrupt, hypocritical, but they completely believed God was with them. Even though they, they were living as complete hypocrites, they were assured, like, Well, come on, we're the chosen people. God is in our midst. He's not going to judge us, He's not going to exile us. There were, theirs was certainly a false belief with the false assurance, and well, later they were judged and exiled. You also have at the other end of the spectrum, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Christ and his word to the church of Sardis. He says to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, you are dead. That's Christ saying that to the church. These are Christians, the church of Sardis. I know your deeds. 
You have a name. Your name says you're alive. It's the name Christian. But he says, you're dead. Pretty black and white. The Sardis was known to be a hypocritical church. He says later they had soiled their garments and he was going to come and judge them lest they repent. They needed repentance and, and belief. But they were proven false by what? By their deeds. So I see your deeds. Your, your name, you, you have gone against your name and proven your name false. Or at least proven your faith false. And just kind of wrap up this section. You have in scripture the ultimate example of a false believer. And that would be whom? Judas, of course. And no doubt, Judas claimed to believe in Jesus like the other disciples. I mean, he literally was following Jesus. And like the rest, he would have believed him to, to be the Messiah. And Judas, like the rest, he gave up much to follow Jesus. But of course, we know that Judas did this for selfish gain. He was looking for a Messiah like, like the rest who would conquer Rome, bring glory back to Israel. He wanted in on that. He wants the, the, the fast train to the top of the kingdom when the kingdom comes to earth. And his, his motive was to further his own glory, looking for a Messiah on his terms. But as time went on, it was revealed that this Messiah is not what you were expecting. He's going to bring glory through a cross, not a crown. And uh, there's, there's actually going to be suffering and affliction for you disciples carry on his mission until the eternal kingdom. Like Judas is like, ah, this is not what I signed up for. And he is not an example of a believer losing salvation. He, that, that's not possible. And it's also very clear. He's an example of a, a false believer, one who never had genuine salvation and shows you can be so close to Jesus and his people, but be false. Let me just read a few quick verses. In John 6, 64. Christ said, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Obviously, Judas, he, he didn't believe. And then verse 70, Jesus answered, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You have John 13, verse 10, 11. Jesus said to them, as Jesus said to him, Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And then verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's revealed... He, Judas was not chosen like the other disciples were truly chosen. He was a son of perdition, and he was never clean, meaning saved, a true disciple like the rest. And then John seventeen twelve, Christ said, While I was with them, his disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And Judas would perish not because he was chosen and, and Jesus lost his grasp on Judas. He, he was never chosen to begin with. His faith was never genuine to begin with. And it was eventually made known by his deeds. The example of Judas not only proves the possibility of false believers, but also goes to show that it, it's not enough 
to hang around Jesus and his people. And just being close to Jesus, the things of Jesus, the people of Jesus, that's not enough. That, that should not produce assurance by itself. And given the reality of many false believers in the church, just being in the church by itself should not produce assurance of salvation. Uh, so far, we have studied the reality of false believers in the Bible. And it, it, it's not just a reality, it's, it's prevalent. And Christ himself said, there, there's not going to be a few like this. He said many. There's going to be many people like this. These false believers evidently had a false faith in Jesus. They may have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Today we'd say they, they prayed the sinner's prayer. But their faith did not save them, did not transform them. And that was always evident by their deeds and lack of a changed life. Now still though, such people seem to have a measure of assurance. And some of them we studied had, had strong confidence. like They were going to heaven for sure, but they were misled. And from the examples we've already identified, we've seen several false bases of assurance. Supernatural experience, religious trappings, tradition, mere proximity to the church and other Christians. If that is all your assurance is based on, you shouldn't have assurance. Now we're going to take this study one more step here tonight and now talk about false faith itself. From false believers, this is the general example of false believers, but now more specifically false faith. Because the reason those people were false believers was because they had false faith. And this is what disturbs us, leads us to question, you know, whether or not our faith is false. Like, I don't want to be one of those false believers like Judas. And that just makes me wonder, like, do I have a false faith? Faith is the only ticket into heaven. But look at all those people who seem to be turned away because of their counterfeit tickets. But this is not the end because the Bible teaches and the counterfeit tickets, they're kind of obvious. They're, they're not that hard to detect. The Bible tells us what the counterfeit ticket of faith looks like. It gives us a description, a depiction, the defining marks, tells us like the color and the shape and all that stuff. It gives us details so that we might identify false faith and obviously thereafter true faith. And this, this is what's going to give us some objective markers later for evaluating our own faith. And so the more, though, you can understand what distinctly false faith looks like, well, as you later examine yourself, pending you pass the test, the more you can be assured you don't have a counterfeit ticket. We will see later how that's going to build up our assurance of, of our own faith. But for now, let's just do this. Study a second section here on false faith, from false believers to now false faith. Now here the biggest passage has to be James chapter 2. So flip on over to James chapter 2. I remember going through James last year, Sunday mornings, and, and uh, these verses 14 through 26, key verses and just camping many messages on them because there, there's so much. But let's read and just be reminded, at least for those of you who were with us last year, 
going through James, but nonetheless, let's read and be reminded of what James says here about true and false faith. James 2.14, he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Now, he doesn't say, can faith save him? Of course, faith can save a person. But he says, can, can that faith save him? What, what kind of faith? Well, the faith that produces no works. And the answer is, well, no. Faith saves. Faith alone saves. But not that type of faith. That, that's talking about false faith. And well, what is false faith? It's the type of faith that produces thereafter no works. If that's your faith, well, it's not a saving type. Verse 15 through 17 gives an example. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Just a simple example of false faith, one that does not produce works. It's such a clear example. How how could you not help? This is a brother or sister. How could you not help them? The person who doesn't just is revealing. And their faith is a dead faith. And, And that equals faith that's by itself. Faith that does not produce anything. It's like a dead tree. There's no fruit on the tree. It's telling you it's just, it's a dead tree. It's dead on the inside. Verses 18 through 20. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Here James goes on a, an imaginary you know, debate, so to speak. But just to prove a simple point that intellectual assent, faith, is not saving faith. Intellectual assent, faith, without works is useless, he says. That, that type of faith, that's going up to Dodger Stadium with like just a random piece of paper. It's not a ticket. You're not getting in with that. It's a useless piece of paper. And so is the faith that just does not uh, produce works. That just, it's just mental, just intellectual. Yeah, you believe God is one. You believe Jesus is Lord. If the demons believe that. They're not getting saved. What's the difference? Let's finish off verse 21 through 26. He says, What is not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or completed. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone? In the same way, was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You know, the long version of that, you can download the three or four sermons we did on that or whatever, but it gives just quick examples of Abraham and Rahab. that They were not declared righteous by their works. They were displayed to be righteous by their works. 
And through their works, through the fruit of obedience, their faith was perfected, meaning, meaning completed. Its reality was put on display. And actually, we find here already a means of assurance of faith. How do you know that your faith claim is not of the dead, false variety? Well, it, it produces works. It obeys God. It's seen in righteous deeds. And to the contrary, if a person has a confession without any such evidence, well, they very well may have a dead faith, a useless dead faith. Now, James 2 is not the only passage that connects a lack of fruit to false faith. Let's see if we can get through a few more of these here. Let's go back to Matthew. So back to Matthew 7. This is the passage right before the one we already read, Matthew 7. I'll just read it. You can turn there. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so then you will know them by their fruits. Now, just in brief, for the sake of time, he, he's specifically referring to false teachers in the context. Uh, but it, it would naturally apply to any false believer, what he says here that they're going to be known by their fruits. Good trees, bad trees represent true believers, false believers. How do you tell them apart? How do you know them? You can't see their inside. You can't see the roots. You can't see someone's heart. You cannot by itself just tell if a person's faith profession is real. And can you look into someone's heart to tell if, if their profession of faith is real or not? We can't. But you can see the fruit. You can't see the result of that person's faith claim. And and genuine faith is going to result in good fruit. False faith is going to result in bad fruit. That's how you tell them apart. What that all looks like, we'll get to later, but just learn the essential lesson that you can tell them apart by what their faith produces or or lack thereof. You know, John at 15.8, Jesus himself said, My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's not how you become a disciple. That's by faith alone. But you want to know how you're proven as a real disciple? Isn't that assurance? Well, he says, just bear much fruit. It just shows your faith is of the real saving variety. It's not that complicated, right? Let's also go to Matthew 13. Squeeze in just uh, another one here. Matthew 13. And for the sake of time, I won't read the whole thing. This is the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. I'll trust you know it. For time here, we're just going to read the explanation. As Jesus, remember, he gives the explanation of the parable. And so go down to verse 18. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, 
This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Okay, so real quick, the focal point of this parable is the soil. That's what's the emphasis here, the different types of soils. And these different soils represent different people and different heart conditions behind following Jesus. We can't really see the soil content of a person's heart, but we can see the outcome, the result of their profession of faith. And the outcome tells us what type of soil we're dealing with, meaning whether they've got a new heart with true faith or still a corrupt heart with false faith. Because apart from the seed sown by the road, these other people are those who've, they've received the gospel and they've, they've professed, but they weren't real and they eventually fall away. You know, verse 20, the guy hears it, receives it with joy. These are people who come close to Christ and for a season receive him favorably. But for various reasons, they, they fell away, proving their faith false. Verse 21, they're not willing to suffer for Jesus, that they're still living for self. Verse 22, these people, for worldliness and greed, it chokes the word, becomes unfruitful, they fall away. But verse 23, the good soil, the true believer, is known by what? Well, bearing fruit. And notice, it's not all the same. Different amounts of fruit is fine. They're just bearing fruit. And that goes to show, as we'll see, assurance it's not based on perfection or perfect maturity. Just you're looking for necessary signs of life. You know, living things, they grow and they bear fruit. Dead things do not grow and they rot. So this is how false faith is eventually re- revealed by the, that lack of fruit and that true faith, the fruit, as we'll see more and more. But clearly, so far we've established false faith is revealed by a bad fruit, a lack of obedience, lack of righteousness, a lack of works in a person's life. That's not the only sign, though, of a counterfeit faith. We're just going to squeeze in one more here that this parable also shows how a lack of perseverance in the faith is another essential distinction between true and false faith. That's kind of obvious, but it's worth stating that a lack of perseverance, that's a sign of, well, a dead faith, a false faith. Jesus said, John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That's really the the proof positive. Perseverance, John 8, 31, but the one who falls away from the faith, well, they're, they're making crystal clear they had a false faith. Now, again, that might sound obvious, but look, if a person is in a state of apostasy, they're not currently believing in Jesus, they should not have assurance of salvation, Right? On the flip side, though, the believer who's struggling, but nonetheless, they're still clinging to Christ. They they can't walk away. They remain. At the very least, that's a sign of true faith. There's more to the equation, but that's a sign of life because true faith is going to 
cling to Christ till the end, no matter what. And we find that true disciples are made by faith and faith alone. Right? You get that? True disciples are made by faith alone. But they are displayed by fruit, by works, by perseverance. They're revealed by fruit and perseverance. And it works the other way. False disciples, their faith claims are proven false by a lack of fruit and a lack of perseverance. And again, going back to the big example, Judas, but contrast him with Peter, Judas versus Peter. They both made claims to follow Jesus as the Messiah. No one could see their hearts. No one could tell on the inside, you know, who's real, who's not. We can't see inside their hearts. But by fruit and perseverance, they were sifted. Both of them, keep in mind, had major sin in their lives. I mean, Peter was not perfect. He stumbled big time. But he still, he repented, he bore fruit, he persevered. Judas did not. And that shows his faith was false. His assurance was false. So just to conclude, our time is up. What have we established today? Now, for one, the Bible does not shy away from the fact that there's going to be some, even many, in the church who are false believers. Salvation is by faith in Jesus, but it's very possible to have fake, phony, false faith. And Jesus himself told us that there would be many tares who would grow up in the church alongside the wheat. And they represent false believers among the true. Sometimes they can be hard to tell apart. In the end, you can trust God. He will judge. He will separate. He'll, He'll get that right. But look, we are not left without some means of sifting ourselves. Specifically, true and false faith are revealed by what they produce. We cannot see into the hearts of others, let alone our own hearts. I mean, how can we know that our profession of faith in Jesus as Lord in our heart is real? And we can't see in there per se, but we can see what comes out of there, what comes out of our faith claim in our heart. And the Bible makes very clear this principle that what comes, uh, what, what, what you see on the outside comes from the inside. It's eventually going to show itself for better, for worse. And so we have established that a false, dead, phony faith will not lead to the transformed life of a true believer. A person's life will produce no fruit, no repentance, no good works, and most likely, no perseverance as well. Already, that gives us some means to evaluate assurance. If you claim to believe in Jesus, but your life displays no fruit, no good works, no repentance, and even no perseverance, well, you should not have assurance of salvation. Like your faith bears the marks of a false faith. You should be very concerned. You very well may be deceived. You might be like the church of Sardis. You need to repent is what you need to do, lest you be judged. Only after you repent and return to Jesus will, or should rather, the joy of salvation return to you because you're living completely contrary to the faith you claim. Now, moving on from here, though, we are now fully set up to start evaluating the positive basis of assurance. And by this, we just mean all the positive marks of true saving faith. We've studied today what false faith looks like, by which you should not have assurance. But the Bible still has plenty more to say about what true faith looks like. And by setting the marks of true faith, we will also gain this, this objective means to evaluate ourselves. 
And if we pass the test as we evaluate our faith claim, well, then we can gain this assurance that our ticket is real. Assurance that our faith is real, and that gives us boldness to trust God's promises that salvation based on faith, we can trust his word. We are saved based on his promises. We can have confidence and assurance we're accepted by God. So next time we will carry on with the positive basis of faith and assurance. Okay, you can take a breath. That was a lot. I know, yes, you guys look really heavy. But let's pray. If you have questions, you can come up after, because we are, as usual, after time. And uh, come up after, and we'll get into more next time. Let me pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word and its clarity, and, and sometimes even talking about hard subjects, but necessary in your wisdom, you've chosen to reveal truth, namely that not all who claim to be saved are saved. And uh, you reveal that for a purpose, that your people might not be deceived, that we might examine ourselves. Like 2 Corinthians 13, 5 calls us to test ourselves and examine ourselves daily to see whether we're in the faith. There's something here we need to do. We're trying to learn about it, Lord. We've learned tonight the negative, what false faith and false assurance looks like. And I just pray you, you guard us from this. Even though we're not done in our study, already let us apply and examine our, our lives and the fruit thereof. Are we following Christ? Are we bearing the fruit of, of righteousness? And when we fall short, are we repenting? Do we have a soft and humble heart that is sensitive to your word and will and, and is seeking to follow? Are, are we just blatant hypocrites living with a double life and unrepentant sin? If anyone here is like that, Lord, I pray you would convict them, cause them to repent and turn to Christ for real that they would forsake their sin and, and call upon the Savior who will transform them, that they would not live such a double life, which is inconsistent with their faith claim. Lord, just give us eyes to see, examine ourselves, and in love to help one another. Just We want to pursue Christ with sincerity, and by that we will gain assurance, as your word will, will comfort us by your promises. But just test us and see if, us, uh, see if there be any uh, false way in our hearts, Lord, and, and just make us true, make us right by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.